Stage and Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. Welcome, my name is David Rösner and in today's episode you will hear the recording of the launch event for our research project, The Sound of Theatre, supported and hosted by the Centre for Advanced Studies at the University of Munich. This event was a panel discussion with several of our research fellows on the topic of Sonic Bliss, favourite musical moments in theatre performances. Links to many of our references in the talk are in the show notes. Enjoy this episode. Thank you very, very much. Thank you to Susanne and to all, all people at, at SAS um, for, for having us, for hosting us, for, for giving us that opportunity. That's really much appreciated. And yeah, I just wanted to say a couple of more thanks. So thanks again to SAS, but also I wanted to uh, say thank you to Tamara Quick, who's been my co-worker during uh, the previous funded project, which I'll talk a little bit about in a second. Uh, and she can't sadly be here tonight, but I want to thank her because a lot of the... The talking about this project is sort of stems out of conversations with her of where we where could we take the the, the project that we've done previously what what new um, frontiers do we want to uh, explore and therefore a big thanks to her thanks also to Rebecca our research assistant in this project and of course um, to all the fellows it's not just not just the three of uh, of them here I will introduce them in a second but thank you all for making the time and embarking with me on this journey which is really quite an sort of uncharted and unknown territory to, um, to, to explore. Um, I'll say a few words about the project itself uh, and then we'll kick off with our actual topic today. So my interest in theatre music goes, wa- goes back quite a long time. I actually even started doing uh, music for uh, theatre shows in, at, as a pupil at my school. And then later when I studied in Hildesheim, uh, it, I, I sort of slipped into this niche because I really didn't want to be on stage that much and didn't want to direct necessarily. But this sort of uh, uh, being at an instrument or being at a record player or a mini disc player, as we had them at the time, some of you will remember these lovely machines, uh, was, was a way of, of getting engaged there. And this carried on through a number of publications and research interests. And then I was lucky enough to be awarded a DFG uh, funding in 2018, uh, which was uh, the start of the previous project that uh, Tamara was also involved with. And that really focused on contemporary theater music in Germany. That was sort of its topic. Uh, It's had a number of outcomes, amongst them a blog, which you're more than welcome to to have a look at and and see. And also, apologies for flogging this, um, a book which came out, I think, in 2019, uh, which is called Theatermusik, Analysen und Gespräche, and then a number of articles and, and things that we did. And as this drew to an end, and it literally finished uh, 10 days ago, so we're literally at the point where this project has come to an end, we thought, where do we go from here? And there were two directions in which we wanted to expand. One was a geographical one, to say, okay, we've looked at Germany, which has a very specific theatre funding system, very specific theatre aesthetics, and I think a very interesting uh, range of uses of theatre music and sound. And how does that compare with other countries, with Europe in particular, because that's probably what we're most familiar with and what we have most access to. Um, So that was the one direction. And the other direction was more a thematic one where we felt we've looked at the use of music and musicians in productions, but isn't it all embedded in a a larger entity? Isn't it all part of a sound? Doesn't the 
the, the particular vocal style of a theater also enter the, its musicality? Doesn't the building and its acoustic enter the musicality? Doesn't that also predetermine um, how people speak in this particular venue, what they do with that? Do technical systems, technological setups, uh, um, the possibilities or impossibilities that they present in larger or smaller theaters, uh, lo-fi, hi-fi, you know, how, how do they impact on a theater group's aesthetic um, and that's kind of the, the, the second uh, part of this project and they are, therefore we also have sort of two missions in this project and the first is really to, to try to edit a book uh, which the fellows uh, will be extremely helpful, there will be a sounding board as I always call it, um, a book with uh, about 20 uh, contributors at this point who will talk about theatre music and its dramaturgy, its aesthetic, its use, its pedagogy, all those kind of things from a wide range of backgrounds and countries. Um, and the second then is uh, working towards a conference in June 2023 when you will all be back and uh, listen to our findings, which will then really focus on this idea of the sound of theatre and uh, its kind of uh, various manifestations. Um, I'll say two, two more words about the sound of theatre because it's a bit of a vague, potentially vague term and, and it will remain vague for some time until we work through it, I, I suppose, because it's a really layered term. I think what I meant when starting out with the project was really something like we talk about the sound of a band. We all recognise uh, a band from a record, even if we, you know, just by the sound of it. We had a, I had a moment at home the other day when, for some reason on Spotify, it played like a fraction of a second of a song and one of my sons named the song straight away there was no lyrics there was nothing no harmonies it was just the sound and he knew instantly what it was and it's that kind of feeling you have a sound you know oh that's the Beatles clearly or it's David Bowie or someone you know you, you have a sound of their voice but also of the production of everything and I wondered how that applies to theatres do they have a distinct sound do the, can we recognise them as we recognise a singer or a saxophone player or a band or, or a label even uh, can we apply it? And how, where does it manifest? Where, how, where do we situate that sound? Is it the acoustics of their venue, as I've mentioned? Is it vocal styles? Is it casting choices? I think increasingly we're, we're, we're getting theatres that do not focus purely on RP, what they call RP, in, in, or Hochdeutsch in, in German, actors that have a trained voice in a particular style that is sort of formed and, and professionalized in a certain way. But perhaps it's people who have an accent or a speech impediment or, or something. Uh, and that may be part of, their, uh, part of the, the ethics, almost, of the, of the vocal casting there. So what we're interested in is our experience of theater, its orality, as uh, Len Kenwick, who, uh, who's part of the fellows, would call it, um, but also how, it, how sound captures meaning and knowledge, so what we might call its acoustimology. Um, and between those two things, there were three points of, of, of focus that I have suggested for the project, and we, we may well deviate from them and, and uh, have new points, but one was really about sounding and listening practices in creating theatre, sort of how do companies and, and, and actors and directorial teams um, use it in their rehearsals, in, their, in, in the way they, they, uh, they make theatre. Then obviously sounding and listening practices in contemporary theatre audiences. And while you might think, well hang on, audiences don't sound, they listen, but that's far from true <laughs> because of course they may sometimes be more vocal, they might just be coughing, they might be laughing, they might be clapping. There's a lot of interesting sounds that come from an audience and people who've been on stage will tell you that they, they, 
instantly hear an audience and hear what they are doing and how does that impact on, on our uh, um, appreciation of a production. And then finally, what I've, I've tried to call the acoustic ecology, uh, sort of with references to Schaeffer, thank you. Um, now, Schaeffer was very much interested in ecology, literally in, a sort of in, in the sounds of nature and the kind of an opposition of urban sounds versus uh, natural sounds. But I'm more interested in the kind of the ethics of what sounds, what musics, what voices do we include on stage? What do we represent there? What do we make audible? What do we suppress? How do we engage with the sounds of Munich, um, whatever they may be, uh, of the communities, of the, 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 the different styles of, of sounding in, in a community? Um, and that's possibly an interesting thing to, to look at it. I'll probably pause here because this, this whole... Um, evening is not meant to be presenting you with findings or anything definite, it's really a teaser. So I hope we make you curious rather than satisfy you already. So if you're not, then we've done a good job. <laughs> so, and I'll introduce the, the fellows and then we'll get probably going. I'll make that quite, quite quick. So first up uh, in alphabetical order is uh, Ross Brown. Ross Brown uh, is, is a uh, professor emeritus from the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. I think he was maybe the first or one of the few professors of sound that existed before we had something like sound studies even. <clears throat> and he's written a lot of books and articles. I mentioned two of them. One is called Sound, a Reader from 2010. And the second one, 10 years later, is called Sound Effect, the Theater We Hear. So that's exactly on topic and very much, uh, very influential. We have all mm. read and met uh, Ross and are highly uh, influenced by him. Next up is uh, Anna Buszynska, adjunct professor of theatre in the Faculty of Polish Studies at the Jagiellonian University in Krakow. She works as an academic, a critic, a dramaturg. Uh, she's published widely on radio art, but also on theatre makers such as, and these are some names you will know, Heiner Goebbels, Gustav Marthaler, uh, Marta Gornica, uh, who did a production here in, uh, in Munich as well. Adrian Curtin is here. You don't have to say hi. We can see you. Um, he's an associate professor at the University of Exeter, where we kind of were passing ships. I left, you came. Um, his research is wide-ranging uh, from modernism to contemporary orchestral theatre, which is the latest, one of the latest research projects you're doing. And in 2014, he published a wonderful book called Avant-Garde Theatre Sound, Staging Sonic Modernity. And he also works as a theatre musician. He's too modest to say that, but I will say it. <laughs> Lynn Kendrick is also from the Royal School of Central Speech, sorry, the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. She's a reader for New Theatre Practices. And we both collaborated in editing a book entitled Theatre Noise, The Sound of Performance, which was actually after a conference that Ross Brown organized. And in 2017, she followed up that interest in, in all things theatre and sound with a, a, a book called Theatre Orality, a core text really on audience experiences and sound of sound-based theatre. She's also founder and director of theatre companies such as the Camden's People, Camden People's Theatre. Ursula Kramer is professor at the University of Mainz. She's a musicologist. She's got a particular interest in Schauspielmusik, and already we're seeing some distinctions. So she's a historian, and it's called Schauspielmusik in its history. We opted for the term theatre music, which is perhaps more open to the various forms uh, today, which are not maybe related to a Schauspiel. And this led to also one of the very few German publications in this area, which is her edited volume called Theater mit Musik, 400 Jahre Schauspielmusik im Europäischen Theater. So really wonderfully encompassing uh, um, collection of articles all through, through, through German history, and, uh, um, and that's from 2014. 
Tamara Quick, I've mentioned already, is now a senior lecturer in Bayreuth, at the University of Bayreuth, having just finished our common work on the DFG project. Uh, and she's in the process of finishing her PhD, which has got a pretty long title, but I'll read it in full. It's called Musical Embodiment, Live Musicking on the Contemporary Theatre Stage, Corporeal Processes of Performative Identity Formation. Uh, she also works practically as a dramaturg for music theatre. Uh, Dushka Radosavljevic is an academic, a critic, and a dramaturg. Uh, she has got Serbian roots, a long presence in the UK, and is currently based in Lund in Sweden. She has worked on ensemble theatres and has most recently published an extensive website and a subsequent monograph on oral and aural, so aurale and orale dramaturgies, theatre in the digital age, which I think was published two weeks ago or something, so it's hot off the press. Julia Schröder is a musicologist specialising in contemporary art music, sound art, sound studies, music and dance, as well as sound and theatre. Her DFG postdoc project explores theatre sounds, Theatergeräusche, at the Technical University in Berlin. She also edited a book on sound and music in theatre focusing on Hans-Peter Kuhn's work for Robert Wilson and Lee Landy for Heiner Müller uh, in 2015. Millie Taylor is right next to us here. She's uh, here in presence. Um, she holds the Fundenende Chair of the Musical at the University of Amsterdam. For almost 20 years, she toured Britain and Europe as a freelance musical director in musical theatre. So you've got the body knowledge and the body memory of, of all those kind of tunes and, and songs. One of the books I keep referring to in my teaching is her and Dominic Simmons' book, Studying Musical Theatre, which is excellent. All of my students will get to read it at some point. Uh, but more recently and more uh, fittingly or more directly connected to this particular project, she's published a book called Theatre Music and Sound at the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company, From Macbeth to Matilda. Konstantinos Thomaidis is a senior lecturer in drama, theatre performance, uh, theatre and performance at the University of Exeter. We'll see him later with a short video, so we'll, we'll have his image there. Um, his publications include voice studies, critical approaches to process, performance and experience, theatre and voice, and time and performer training. So he's very much in the performer training world and very much our go-to person with uh, voice. We're coming to an end, so I, I promise. We're, we're approaching the letter V, so it's, it's, it's clearly there. Peter Verstrate is assistant professor at the University of Groningen, and I can't pronounce this, and Maria Solovska, Curie TV. Fellow at the Free University in Berlin. So he's got sort of two legs to stand on at the moment, or two chairs to fall in between. <laughs> he's published his first book uh, on auditory distress and orality in contemporary music theatre, later co-edited a collection on Kathy Barbarian, a pioneer in contemporary vocality. And he's also worked extensively in Turkey and about Turkey, focusing on post-migrant theatre, artists in exile, um, and has a book forthcoming on theatre performance and commemoration, st staging crisis, memory, and nationhood. So, by this time you will be tired of my voice, which is <laughs> fair enough, and therefore I can now hand over to Adrian to give us a for first example for our topic for t tonight, which was Sonic Bliss. So we really wanted to uh, um, have an exchange amongst ourselves as much as with you about singular mom memories of, of moments in theatre which we recall as being sonically either memorable in some cases or blissful even, and where we attach that very much to uh, a piece of music or a particular sound uh, um, constellation. And, and that's what we'll do. We'll take two uh, parts. So we'll do three examples and a short discussion about them. Then we'll do three more examples and a perhaps slightly longer discussion. And at that point also invite if you may have questions or if there are questions from Zoom. 
And now, without further delay, Adrian. Thank you, David. Hi, everyone. Uh, lovely to be here. Um, thank you for having us all. We're very uh, pleased uh, to be here and in conversation with one another. Um, so our brief was to, as David said, was to reflect on um, moments, memorable moments that we have had in theatre involving sound and music. And I was very captivated by the, the phrase sonic bliss. Um, it made me think of um, moments I've experienced in theatre where I have felt um, enraptured, caught up in the performance, transported, maybe even um, pleasurably discombobulated, um, which happens to me from time to time. Not, not all the time, but sometimes I feel um, a little wobbly when experiencing a piece of theatre or a, a concert. Um, a few weeks ago, in fact, I was uh, attending a, a music performance and I was so transported by it that when I left the, the auditorium, I nearly walked into traffic. I mean, there was a bus that came very close to me and I thought, my God, I might die as a result of having attended this performance. And no one will know it's because I was enraptured. They'll just think I, I was being clumsy um, and, and wasn't, wasn't minding the traffic. So it's something I have to um, keep track of. The production I'd like to, to talk about for a few minutes is one I experienced a few years ago by a company called Dead Centre, who are based between Dublin and London. They've also toured internationally, so maybe you might have seen one of their productions. Um, the production I, I want to speak about was called Chekhov's First Play, which premiered in 2015. And as the title suggests, it's based on an early play by Chekhov, um, which he left untitled. It's um, sometimes referred to as Platonov, after the main character. It's not a very good play. I mean, famously, it's like, like a, a problem play because it's too long and the, the, the dramaturgy is weird. Um, but you can see all of the kind of trademark Chekhovian ideas and themes and characters in this, in this play and Dead Center take a very playful approach to presenting the play. It's quite ironic and metatheatrical and tongue-in-cheek. Um, and I'd like to zoom in on, on a, a specific uh, sequence um, in, the, in the middle of this production where there's a, a profound shift happens in the world of the play. It moves from late 19th century Russia to 21st century Dublin. A demolition ball appears at, at the top of the stage and it breaks through the back wall of the set. Um, a spotlight comes on an audience member who stands up and joins the cast as the character of Platonov. And we are all, the audience is all in headphones, so we're listening to the whole production through headphones, and the director is giving instruction to the audience member who's playing Platonov. And also at this moment, um, the actors go from speaking naturally to miming their speech. They lip-sync their speech, and we hear their recorded sound in our headphones. So there's a lot going Going on, and also um, a piece of electronic music um, that comes into our ears. So I'm just going to show a, a two-minute clip from this production to give you a little a little taste of it.
it goes on in this vein. And I was sitting in, uh, where was it, the Battersea Arts Centre in London in 2018, when this, where this production was. Um, and at this moment, I became totally captivated by this performance, because it's actually a kind of checklist of all the things that I really love. It's a piece of modernism, um, there's interesting sound, uh, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, and it's engaging with existential crisis and uh, themes of death. So, of course, I'm going to love this. Um, but I remember sitting in the, in the theatre and feeling kind of woozy as, this, as the performance uh, proceeded. Um, I felt kind of um, a little uh, having like an out-of-body experience almost. And I think this was uh, largely attributable to the, the sound that I was being immersed in. Right? You can get a sense from that piece Right, that it's quite hypnotic um, in its in its arrangement. Right, of all of these kind of looping rhythms and arpeggios, um, and. I was wondering, well, what is this experience that I'm having, this enwrapped experience, which is both pleasurable, because I had a sense, yeah, aesthetically, this is beautiful, and I think it's completely working, even if I don't really understand quite exactly what's going on. You know, why are the characters suddenly miming, speaking with one another? What is the point of having this audience member as as one of the characters in, in the mix, right? What am I hearing through my ears? Because not just electronic music, but also I'm hearing at some point um, voices that are being stretched out, um, strange sound effects, um, <coughs> noises from the street which have been recorded. Um, so it's a very strange but absorbing sonic experience that I'm enjoying, but I'm also feeling a sense of, of disquiet about it, right? It's, it's a pleasure that's mixed in with a kind of um, unease. And this matches onto what's happening uh, in the, on, on the stage, because the characters, as this play proceeds, become increasingly um, detached from themselves. They say that they become nobodies. They lose their sense of identity, of a stable subject, and they become a kind of amorphous, um, amorphous collective entity. And what I came to realize was that the, the sound design and the music was giving me uh, a vicarious experience of what the characters themselves were, were feeling, right? Their psychological states, their physiological states, as they became detached from themselves. And I think that's something that sound and music can do really effectively. I mean, we know that, you know, if a, if a character is happy and there's a kind of happy-sounding melody, then that's an obvious connection. But when you're exploring a kind of an, an abstract state, such as losing your sense of self, right, that you can have a, a sound design that can give you that sense um, I think is particularly effective and particularly striking. So I went away with these thoughts, um, and uh, I, I knew that I wanted to, to know more about them, so I, uh, I spoke with the sound designer, and I spoke with the directors, and I spent some time uh, watching the recording and analyzing it, which was another kind of bliss. Um, and then I, I wrote a, a chapter about it, and a, a book that's coming out next year, not just about the sound design, but I thought what I thought I would do, if David will permit me, is to just read the last paragraph of what I've written, just to concept, just to crystallise um, what I've been saying up until now, and then I'll then I'll be quiet and I'll yield the floor. Okay, this it will take like a minute. When the fictional world of the play mysteriously shifted to contemporary Dublin, the sound design became much fuller and more present. 
the audience was immersed in a near-continuous stream of sound and music in which the pre-recorded dialogue was mixed. Prominent use was made of electronic music, specifically a track from the German electronic group Moderat, which served as a grounding element or sonic bed. This six-minute-long instrumental track lent a laid-back, mildly hypnotic techno vibe to the proceedings. It provided the musical basis for the actor's choreography and also potentially entranced audience members with its unwavering, pulsating beat, looping arpeggios and repetitive harmonies. Listening to this music via headphones, audience members resembled attendees of a silent disco or silent rave, except they were sitting in their chairs. Music of this sort can promote a trance state that can involve dissociative thought, hallucination, intense absorption, a feeling of being outside of one's body, and a sense of oneness with other people. This is precisely the ontological state into which the characters are thrown once Platonov, that's the audience member, joins them and they become an amorphous collective, ecstatic in their own self-destruction. Additionally, the sound design featured components that sounded strange and were difficult to identify in the overall mix such as a slowed-down extract from Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball song, NASA recordings of electromagnetic vibrations from space, choral music from Russian Orthodox masses, and binaural recordings made on the streets of Dublin. A potential cumulative effect of the sound design was to put the audience into a vertiginous state of mind, pleasurable but also somewhat overwhelming, like looking over a high precipice. In this way, audience members could acquire a heightened sense of the character's ontological security. In their book, Sonic Experience, a Guide to Everyday Sounds, Jean-Francois Ogoyard and Henri Torg theorize the Sharawaji effect, a feeling of plenitude created by the contemplation of a sound motif or a complex soundscape of inexplicable beauty, one with no discernible order or arrangement, which can stimulate a feeling of pleasure in perceptive confusion, in an apprehension of the sublime. By immersing audience members in sonic plethora, Dead Center gave us the opportunity to experience our own self-dissolution within the relative safety of theatre, which could be both blissful and terrifying. I wasn't hoping for applause. That was, that was not a thing. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, I'd, I'd love to unpick it already, but uh, we, we have more to come. So what we'll do now is play a clip from Anna, from one of our uh, other fellows, who sent in uh, a video recording, uh, both of her talking about a theatre event and then a short uh, extract from it, and then we'll turn to Peter. Yeah. <laughs> Good evening. My favourite musical, or rather sonic moment, is the one I experienced, still as a student, while watching Christian Lupa's performance. It was the Skalkwerk, or the Limeworks in English, based on the novel by Thomas Bernhard, directed at the old theater in Krakow. The novel Das Skalkwerk is unique, 
Sounds, music, hearing and listening all play a special role in its plot. The main protagonist, Conrad, is consumed with his work, writing a book, The Ultimate Treatise on Hearing. He's trying to find out how we listen and what we hear. His disabled wife is the victim of his obsessive experiments. He constantly whispers, shouts, plays different sounds to her. Conrad applies the so-called Urbancic method on his wife for decades, until, finally, his experiments kill her. While creating his performance, Lupa worked with Jacek Ustaszewski, a famous jazz musician and pioneer of world music in Poland. Ostaszewski's work, however, was less about composing melodies and more about creating a stage soundscape. At the front of the stage there is a piano box with three pedals. Between the walls of stage design, sounds are amplified, echo, and are distorted. So the stage is the inside of the giant instrument. But not only, the longer we watch the show, the clearer it becomes that what we hear is not objective, but we perceive the sounds as the characters do. They suffer from hypersensitivity to sound, and they are unable to focus, perceiving every tiny rustle in the silence as painful noise. They hear voices that are not there, getting lost in a maze of acoustic memories. All the sounds seem to resonate with them, with their feelings and emotions. The actor duo Andrzej Hudziak and Małgorzata Hajewska-Krzysztofik conduct their performances on the verge of a trance. Their thought bodies act as a tuning fork that vibrates and makes sounds while being stroked. In a moment, you too will have the opportunity to be the subject of Konrad's experiment with the Urbancic method. Great. We'll talk about this in a minute, but first, <laughs> first we'll hear Peter. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, so for my blissful theater moments, I uh, chose the performance To You the Birdie, in between brackets Fedre, uh, from 2002. Did anybody see that performance by any chance? I know that Millie did, but nobody, nobody remembers that one. Uh, by the Worcester Group, this was actually an interesting time for me because this was the, uh, the time when I was doing my second master's in theater studies and I was um, already formulating my PhD project. So, in a way, I think this performance was quite formative uh, in, in, in you know, what I was going to study, which was you know, sound and music in, in, in contemporary theater and music theater. But um, so, um, let's say, the blissful moment for me was particularly when Willem Dafoe, maybe you know the, the, the actor, um, he, he came on the stage with, a, with his, you know, uh, 
muscle torso. And, um, and the production is actually sonifying everything. So, um, so every little movement that he made with his pictorial you know, muscles <laughs> was being amplified uh, or was at least, uh, you know, it was a sound coming uh, to it. So it was like, uh, he came up like a god to me, you know, like was very godlike. So, um, so in 2007, five years later, I wrote about uh, already this uh, performance in a, in a Flemish uh, theater magazine and I, I thought maybe I, I read a little bit uh, that but it's a little bit of a, a rough uh, translation from Dutch to English and then uh, then we can go and see a clip although I couldn't find the clip it's interesting in itself uh, you know thinking about memory uh, because um, probably uh, uh, because Willem Dafoe left uh, the Wooster group uh, in 2002 so the, the recording is from from later so we couldn't find the specific moment uh, I, I would love to get in touch with Willem Dafoe to get that uh, <laughs> to see if I if I still remember it well. So the quote is, I remember vividly how the illustrious Willem Dafoe as muscleman Tissois strode slowly across the stage with each stride muscle or you know, stroke of the pink creating a sound effect of a thunderclap. Like a Greek white marble statue coming to life, he cracked and burst through a wall of sound, a sonic boom in slow motion. Defoe's thundering voice roared through the subwoofers into the hall, tickling every eardrum of every spectator, hence performativity. Sound touches the spectator uh, without much room for escape. It forces you to react, both emotionally and cognitively. As a theater sign, it often marks the presence of an object or a persona. But it does more than that. Sound comments as here in this case, the excessive sound effects sonifying every muscular movement of the false torso. It acts effectively also on our abdominal muscle, our visceral cavities of the abdomen. We get sporadic uh, goosebumps. We do not only listen to the sounds with our ears, but with our entire bodies. So it was really that, that, that physical, the physicality of, 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 the, of that moment that made it maybe particularly blissful. But um, yeah, as I said, I don't have the specific clip, <laughs> but, um, but we, do, we did find on YouTube um, a video clip uh, that shows you that, at least that, you know, how they sonified every, every little uh, thing on, on the stage. So let's have a look at that first. And I'm sorry, the video quality isn't fantastic, but it's really about the sound, so. Play. <laughs> struck me also thinking about as an exercise you know to think about this moment was actually um, how much of the images of the body movements that are um, glued to the sounds were actually I actually had forgotten about them um, since actually this performance was really also about disembodying the sounds constantly so you see 
um, you know, how a lot of the sound was kind of a mixture of some of the live sounds for the actors, but also a lot of sounds that were added as sound effects. Um, so it, it really is about that disembodiment, and I think that actually really drew me to the concept of acousmatics. I don't know if you're f familiar with that term. It's a term that Jérôme uh, Peignon uh, is a poet, I think, in 1955, uh, mentioned in a radio show uh, in French, Bruit Acousmatique. And it's basically going back to um, the uh, the lessons of Pythagoras and his uh, pupils, uh, who were called the Acousmatoi, I think, in Greek. I, I, thought, I hope uh, uh, Konstantinos can, can correct me there in the Zoom. And the, basically, the, the, the pupils were listening to the master's voice from behind a curtain as to, of course, put the attention solely on, on the content. But obviously that, comes, uh, that brings a lot of um, power relations uh, as well. You know? If you don't see the, the master's voice, then you know, that obviously that, that master becomes very powerful, like godlike, omniscient, maybe also status. So, so that's basically what, what also in this performance I think the disembodying does. It's, it's really the, the kind of play with power. And obviously also uh, as a kind of rule of thumb that we know from soundscape studies is that you know, once a sound is, is disembodied, uh, you basically as a spectator, you, you reattach that sound to whatever body that you find in the space that fits that, that sound. So uh, that's exactly the effect of uh, the, the ventriloquist uh, when, when you attach the sound of the ventriloquist voice to the, uh, to the puppet. Obviously, there is also a lot going on here, I think, in terms of sound effects. There's a whole body of literature, like more than a century long, of, of scholars and, 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 and practitioners who, uh, who, who basically critique the use of, of sound effects. I'm, I'm, I'm particularly thinking of Adolf Appiah, for instance, who, uh, this, uh, as a scenographer and designer of the stage at the end of the 19th century, beginning of 20th century, was really uh, uh, detesting the sounds of, uh, of vaudeville and melodrama of his time because the, the sound effects, um, again, you know, in a disembodying way, would, uh, would, would, would basically play on the nervous system of, of the audience, but in a kind of cheap way, definitely conventionals, conventional way that, that he was, was uh, yeah, in a way, critiquing. And that's actually, what I think, what the Wooster Group is doing, is exactly playing with these conventions and these expectations of the audience. Um, obviously, here, the sound effects uh, bring to mind maybe... A, uh, you know, television shows, uh, film, I'm thinking of Star Wars, but it, you can all, it go all the way back to kind of slapstick, black and uh, silent uh, uh, movies, and obviously also gaming. Uh, so, the, I mean, I remember at, at around that time, maybe a little bit later, there was the Wii console. I don't know if you remember uh, that computer uh, console where, where you could actually, with, uh, you, you wrote quite a lot about it, right? About these, with these interfaces, you could also play tennis, uh, and it would always come with these sounds as well. So, so here uh, in, the, in the performance you see that the court of, uh, of Phaedre, which is you know, played by Racine, is literally turned into a, a tennis or even a, you could say maybe a badminton uh, courtyard where every little sound uh, or every little gesture is, is sonified and is put into a, into a sound, uh, just like in a computer game. The effect of it was, and we can talk about if it's bliss or maybe hell, is that um, you know, it, it creates this constant e excess of sound, right? And I think that is, for me, um, the performative moment. You know, that, that, I mean, when, when you are um, confronted with that excess, 
um, you, you turn it into meaning, but obviously at some point maybe you, you kind of lose control of that over the meaning and that could be that maybe st uh, that blissful moment. But it's not like, a, 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 I, well, we can talk about it if it's still the case today. I mean, in 2002, I would say that the effect to me of, of, of the excess had on me was it created this kind of uh, meta level of, of, of making comments rather than losing yourself into the sound or being immersed by it. So maybe you could call it an active immersion to, uh, to some extent, since it was actually playing with, with how to position yourself towards the sound. So, um, and that's exactly the beginning of my PhD, is to really think about how listening modes um, are actually um, given by the theater stage in terms of uh, possible virtual, let's say, positions that you could take. And, and especially when it comes to when, when disembodied and acousmatic sound, um, it, it makes at least this performance made me aware of the of the great power that uh, that, that the, the theatre makers and in this case the sound designers. I mean, uh, maybe I should mention them: uh, John Collins, Jeff Abbas, and Jim Dawson. They were really the, the kind of wizards of Oz, you know, the, the acousmaticians, uh, yeah, playing uh, the sound, um, and, you know, constantly like playing, uh, creating a kind of playground, uh, also for the listener. But it's not just the playground. I think there's a, there went a lot of dramaturgical thought in it, and it's exactly to create that kind of uh, that kind of space where, as a listener and as a spectator, you respond to that power, but you always have kind of a, uh, uh, some kind of space to to respond uh, to, the, to the sounds in your own individual way. As we've all spoken already, Millie, <laughs> any thoughts on what you heard so far? Well, I think, I think the, the, the characteristic that I was picking up in all three of them is to do with excess. Mm -hmm. You know, it was so clear the trajectory of those pieces is about addition. And one of the things that you were just saying was um, this idea that what you have is a plenitude that almost moves to madness, to, um, I mean, you were talking about the sublime and, and the way that became almost chaotic. And I, I, I'm trying to remember my experience of seeing that production. And I was completely overwhelmed by it because I'd never seen or heard anything like it. And as someone who was from a, a music and theatre background, it absolutely blew my mind. But it, it was that th thing of plenitude it drew my attention to sound in a way that I had completely not been aware of before. And that was early 2000s, wasn't it? Um, yeah. That It seemed to me that theatre makers started to play with sound at about that time. Before then, we'd started to have... Sorry, I'm going historical oh, now. But, but before that, it seemed to me that sound was something that was additional to a theatre piece that was tended to, use, tended to be used in a somewhat realistic way. And then suddenly there was this whole raft of pieces, of works, that suddenly went, but sound is a thing. Sound is a thing we're playing with in, in theatre. And I think that's what you three have really drawn our attention to, is this idea of plenitude and playfulness in ways that are multiplicitous. And making, making sound theatrical. Yes. Right? So in, that, in the Worcester Group piece, yeah. I mean, we are now living in a world of 
uh, a technological world where all of our devices make sound and everything is is sonified, and we are we are becoming used to that as a as a general principle. If we were um, so that production, I guess, may not sound as strange to a, a contemporary audience because we're now more uh, we're, we're more used to that, right? But the, that production then is, I mean, it's more alienating in mm. in the early two thousands, and yet it's drawing on something that's happening in the outside world, right? That sonification. Uh, is increasingly part of the everyday. So what theatre can do is to attend to how we listen today and to put that under the microscope and to play with it and um, you know, to help audiences to, uh, to attend to hearing anew and attend to sound anew. Mm. Um, and it, perhaps more so, I mean... It, I mean, oftentimes, I think mainstream uh, film and television um, doesn't always uh, draw our attention to the artificiality of those kinds of sound developments, right? Mm -hmm. the, the conventions are used, but we're not, we don't always recognize that, you know, Foley sound, for example, is a complete contrivance. We're absorbed into it being a kind of natural thing, whereas theater, uh, by using theatricality and uh, modes of presentation, right, can make us aware of the the construction of, of sound and, and how we hear, right, as postmodern groups like the Worcester Group and indeed Dead Center um, can do as well, right? So those, when you're looking at someone and their, their speech is, it appears to be coming out of their mouth, but it isn't, right? It's pre-recorded. It makes us it, it makes us question yeah. how we see and how we hear and how those two things and it, it correspond. And it really was that time period, wasn't it? That and it, it's interesting that we're sort of looking at mm -hmm. a certain time period yeah. here that something started to happen mm. um, that has has generated a whole body of work in the contemporary period. Well, I mean, I would say that the early 20th century was also uh, in, yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah, I have yeah. to, because I wrote the book, right? But yeah. like, uh, <laughs> it was also a time of great sonic experimentation, yeah. and I think that, that, come, that it comes again, right, mm. in the late 20th century yeah. or early 21st also with the technology, right? Yes. The birth of certain technologies, yes. and I think also for the theatre stages, they were getting more and more equipped, mm. and stages were even, you know, uh, built in such a way yes. with, 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 you know, acoustic possibilities. Yes. Mm. So, I mean, what we now call the sonic turn in academic uh, mm. writing actually started to happen earlier in the theatres mm. with all that equipment that uh, was, but, was available. But of course the equipment yeah. didn't really become available in theatres until it was yeah. reduced in size sufficiently yeah. and in, in, in uh, value, of course. Yeah. I mean, you had to be able to buy it. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, it is really, you know, in our lifespans, it is incredibly recent. Mm. You know, if you think yeah. that, you know, we, w we were making theatre shows with handheld radio microphones with cables in the 1980s. <laughs> and, you know, that's how recent this mm. whole turn is. And then suddenly we have a piece like mm. the Worcester Group or the one yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. You know, with everybody on headphones. Is that yours? That was, that was mine. That was yours. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, that that would be completely unthinkable mm. even 10 years earlier. Yes. And I no, think just that development of technology yeah. has really transformed yeah. what's And what's audiences possible. expect that now, right? They yes. expect uh, an experience at the theatre to be as sonically sophisticated as if they were, um, you know, in a very high-tech... Uh, you know, theatre with Dolby surround, right? I mean, there's less of a, of which I think is, an, in a way, I find a little bit um, regrettable, right? Um, the idea that you can't have, um, you know, sound that might be more, uh, you know, less than perfect, right, in a, in a theatrical occasion. And the, the, the sound designer for the Dead Centerpiece told me that, um, you know, he was very ardent about getting high-quality 
headphones so that there was no spill from the environmental sound. He didn't want any of the of the theatre sound or the the you know the neighbourhood in which uh, the the production was staged to be in the in the audience's headphones. Yet they recorded sounds from the from the streets and put those in the headphones. You're thinking, well, that's a curious combination. Right? You don't want the actual environment, you know, to, to to be in the live performance, but you do want it to be in the sound design, right? Because it's more perfect and you can tune it so that it's mm. it's aesthetically pleasing. Right? But is is mm. that about aesthetic ple- aesthetic pleasing or is it about control? Control. Well, and both. and yeah. you know and and the almost the louder you get the more control you yes. have. Yes. Well high fidelity, right? I mean, Ross Brown would have a field day with with, with this uh, sound yes. designer because, of course, he's he's all pro theatre noise, all yes. the kind of yes. unwanted yeah. sounds of the of the lights ticking yeah. and and yeah. and the mobile phone going off or something. Yeah. He's very uh, adamant that that's just part of it now, and we shouldn't get on, up on a higher horse about it. And I think this is also interesting in terms of local or geographical aesthetics. That I think, yes, I, I would I would assume that in the UK, this kind of high fidelity. CD, you know, blockbuster sound is is perhaps Mm. more of an aesthetic aim that people aim for. And I think uh, particularly in the more um, experimental theatre groups in, in, in Germany and elsewhere, there, there's sometimes a very distinctively lo-fi yeah. approach where they have like an egg slicer yeah. and a microphone yeah. and a couple of boxes or something and they try to create something from that. Mm. So I think I, I just wanted to say it's not a universal mm. uh, thing. The other thing I wanted to say, and I think mm. we, we should then slowly move on to our second batch of okay. examples to give them their, their due, mm. is the, the, the one word that you haven't used yet is body, because I think uh, yeah. that that was so evident that, yeah. and also Anna's piece, I mean, Anna's piece is, mm. uh, well, the, the piece, not her piece, but the piece that she, she yeah. introduced by Christian Lupa is so much about an embodied, almost tormented, mm, yes. you know, uh, existence that we experience as audience yeah. member, mm. as an audience member through sound. And you, you talked about this, this ridge walk between the pleasure and the pain, or the, yes. the, the overwhelming, mm. and sort mm. of the, that it's sometimes. I think in, in her case, it goes towards the, yes. the distressing, no doubt. But the distressing is not a semiotic sort of. Oh, I, I, I. I can read a sonic sign about mm. something terrible, I have some mental illness in that particular case or an accident or something, mm. but I experience it. It's a yeah. somatic... Yeah. Uh, you talked about body cavities yeah, getting yeah, yeah, sort yeah, of vibrating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that, that's a really interesting through yeah. line as well through these yeah. discussions that sound is so much an embodied experience. It's also an embodied uh, thing to do, you know, if you, if you vocalise things, although sometimes you sit on a computer and it's not very embodied. Yeah. Um, but I found that very interesting, that, uh, that notion. With regard to your uh, moment, I, I was going to ask you, because, I mean, it was everybody had the headphones yes. on, right? So, and they, they are lip-syncing, basically, right? At that point of the show, At they are. At that point, okay. Yeah. But, so, basically, everybody's in their headspace. They are. Right? It's, it's really like an audio drama, yes, almost. Like it is. We're talking about the studio sound mm. as well. Like, it's very, very aesthetic. Mm. So, but how did it then have that wobbly effect when you, when you went up, walked out of the... Out of the auditorium, basically. I mean, how did how did that happen? How did that happen? Well, I mean, if you're if you're immersed in headphones for two hours, and and a good chunk of that is listening to a kind of electro, you know, trance music, it's not hugely surprising that you're going to be a little discombobulated by it, right? Um, You know, it's like kind of like going to a disco or something, right? Then you're you're taken out of that sound world and you're back in the real world, and that shift. Is 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 a little a little hard to make, right? Yeah. Um, you're you're out of this intense design and you're back into yeah, yeah, the yeah. noise of the world, right? Yeah. To add one more thing. I think it's also to do with our musical 
uh, habits and experiences because what I picked up from the track was that they play with the tuning a lot. Mm, so for, to any musical ear, it's like, ooh, what are they doing? Yeah. You know, because it's, it's it's not in tune. It's constantly going yeah. like a like a like a wobbly tape or yes. something, and that really. Yeah. gives you this vertigo yeah. feeling this audience yeah. if, if you have a an ear for that uh, to begin with mm -hmm. so I, maybe some, yes, some people won't be to it but if if you're used to reasonably tuned instruments or recordings then it really throws yeah. you or it threw me yes. when just listening to the track mm -hmm. but but i think being separate sorry but i think being separate from the environmental sound really gives you that as well you know just the, just that shutting yourself off so that you know you're not aware of other people in the space and yes. that's that's one of the joys of theater for me is is that sort of sharing it and that sort of community yeah. and and as soon as you're all sitting there in your headphones yeah. you're not then part of that and you're not part of the environment anymore yeah. and for me that mm -hmm. would be Hell, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're playing, they're playing, they're trying to subvert, yeah. you know, what yeah. is, what, what does it mean to be co-present, right? Mm. And can we be alone together, exactly. right, through, through sound? Only crowds. Yes. <laughs> we must move on. Yes. It's my turn. I'll try to be brief. When I sort of set us this task, uh, I, obviously I thought, well, what do I remember? And there were too many examples, but as I, I went with one. And it's funny that we, many of us have sort of productions from the early 2000s that it seems to be like a, a peak time for sonically rememberable um, uh, performances. This is, I, I won't tell you an awful lot about this. Uh, Sibi Ladi Chakawai is a choreographer who's become very famous. He's actually done a number of productions at the Staatsoper here. Um, at the time, I think it was one of his early pieces. He did it with uh, Le Ballet, C de la B, thank yeah. you, the Alain Platel's company yeah. in Belgium. And Foi, um, as my very sketchy French tells me, is a belief, is that right? Or believing? I thought it was faith. Oh, faith, good. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So it's a piece, it's a device piece, it's a meditation on what do we believe in. And it was done with, with a number of dancers, obviously, but also with a, a, a small ensemble of old music musicians, singers, lute players, etc., etc. So it was a, a funny mashup of, of different performance modes and different performative um, presences. That's kind of all I, I'll say. I'll, I'll show you a quick clip first and then I'll say four things that I, the three things that stuck with me. There's a land that I heard of once in a Someday I'll wish your air must start and wake up where the clouds are far behind you, robots wake up. They'll get wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops. Away above lemon drops. Away above the drops. The chimney tops, that's where you fall.
But before I start, one of the funny things about, was that, about me remembering this piece was that I distinctly remembered that moment, that transition from someone doing a very virtuosic vocal um, uh, imitation of a technical device going slightly wrong, whatever it is. I, I, at some point it sounds like a record player getting stuck, at some point it sounds like a VHS tape being wound back, at some point it sounds like a cassette tape, sort of being slightly, having been in the sun in the car for too long. Uh, so it plays on different media types as well. And then this moment where it goes into pure vocal perfection, where it's just beautiful, and they sing beautiful, and they're actually well, well-trained singers, and it, it's just beautiful. Uh, and I remember that moment very distinctly, and I think I remembered all also because there was a CD that, that you could buy of the production, and I may have listened to that more than that. And I only discovered a week ago that there is a video of this production, and I watched it and I couldn't remember any of the visuals. I did not remember what people had been doing to, to this music, which was uh, memorable, I would, I would say, but I, it, it didn't stuck with me. It hadn't stuck with me. So the, the one thing I was uh, curious about, why is this, why do I remember it as a blissful, as a sort of moment in the theatre, was this notion of virtuosity. I think it's something... I know Dan Rebellato recently gave a talk about virtuosity in musical theatre to just bring Millie's expertise into the, into the play as well. Um, and it's something not to be frowned upon. You know, I think this, this moment where something is really craftful, where I think what she's doing vocally to... to uh, that there's no technical devices that do those kind of effects. It's her doing them, and I think it's, it's admirable, and you kind of... And uh, then, obviously, the, the level of musicianship following then with the choir is just beautiful, and you don't always have that in the theatre. Sometimes singing actors can be a bit of a test to musical ears, let's put it that way. Um, so that was just something that I, I remember fondly. But it's also, uh, as, as I've rewatched it, it's a sort of what I've called a relational virtuosity, because it's, it's virtu virtuoso in connecting all these elements, in, in the dancers being in sync with the music, in the kind of elements playing together to a to greater good, uh, in the way that it's uh, staged, in the way that the, the singers are sort of on that balcony to the left-hand side, and it becomes this, because you're focused on her performance, and it becomes this surprise spatial moment where a sound catches you from, from the side and, and, and envelops you. There is a tension, a friction between the elements. It's not, uh, they're not all played together for one effect. Uh, they're not too there in a simple way to overwhelm you, but in a sort of more complex way. So obviously the song is already highly loaded. It's from this film, The Wizard of Oz. It's sung by Judy Garland. Uh, people know it. People are fond of it. So it's already recreated. It plays with that prior knowledge of people. I think it plays with our recollection, our sonic recollection. But, but then it's, it, the, the, there's counterpoint. There is tension. We have someone who's clearly on the loo. That's not terribly um, elevated or high highbrow or something. Then we have a very sexual scene going on at the same time. Counterpoint to our <clears throat> image of Judy Garland that as this you know, uh, innocent girl in the red dress, etc., etc. So there, there are a lot of confusing cultural signs that, are, that, that, that we have. And then we've got this old music which gives us a sense of oh we're in a concert now, this is proper music, this is, this is good this is highbrow, this is hochkultur or whatever and, this is all, and then we have this in front of these whitewashed walls which are not very beautiful or, or anything, they're, they're quite rough and, and edgy and so there, there, there is that tension there and I, I think that's something I, 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 I assume I find blissful when it's not just creating one effect and I feel slightly manipulated into the effect because everything points in one direction but it points in several directions Direction. Another thing is I find that I increasingly struggle with performances where I don't understand what they're doing and how they're doing it. So it becomes very cryptic and there's just things going on 
sounds and things, and I don't know who is singing, who's creating that sound, who's actually doing that. Uh, I find that slightly frustrating. So it's like the acousmatic thing. If I don't find a source to attribute it to, I'm, I'm slightly frustrated. Here, it's very easy to see who does what. It's mm. all transparent. It's I can see how it's made and still mm. marvel at it. You know, so it's mm. not. Um, but by showing who, who does it, it's, it's not taking away from the from the from the pleasure of it. I think. And then. I suspect it's also to do with, and that's another aspect I find interesting, with per personal listening histories that we bring to the theatre. What tastes do we bring? What experiences? And being both a fan of Baroque music and of jazz music, I was in a sweet spot here. You know, it sort of it came together. And I do, some people hate this kind of mashups or, 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 you know, amalgamations of genres or something. And sometimes it can be painful. Uh, um, but, but in this particular case, I thought it, it came together really well. So bringing personal sensitivities to it, which I don't have, for example, for techno, so I wouldn't be the most appreciative audience of, of the example that you were giving, uh, Adrian. I think um, it, it, it's also to do with that and the kind of personal listening experience to bring to it. That's perhaps all I want to say about it. And I hand over to Millie. Okay, well, I'm taking us in a slightly different direction, but actually building on what you've just said about those ideas of dissonance and gaps. Because... Um, David sent us this title, Sonic Bliss. And so I was thinking about Sonic Bliss. And to me, bliss relates to a concept that was developed by Ronald Vart in um, the 1970s, the concept of jouissance. He talked about this idea of jouissance as bliss is how it was translated into English. And so as soon as I saw Sonic Bliss, I'm thinking jouissance. So what we have is this idea of a text that, uh, in, his, in his conversation, he talks about two kinds of text. One is the kind of text that guides you. What David was just saying in terms of some kinds of text, they guide you, they tell you what to think, and the sound and the image will work together to achieve that. And there are other kinds of texts. And these are the kinds of texts that he refers to as... Um, uh, writerly. Writerly. We were having this conversation earlier. Um, and, uh, and they have this concept of jouissance where what they're doing is they're opening up a space between elements of the text for the audience to create their own interpretation. Now, this was something that he was developing way back in the 70s. But um, it seemed to me that, that when we've got this title, what is our blissful moment? That was the thing that, for me, that I was trying to describe. And so I came up, I subverted the whole task, and I came up with two examples of, of what I was thinking in relation to bliss. So can I have the next one? Thank you. And one of them was... Um, oh. oh, there it is. Yeah. And this was a playtext... Um, back in the days when I was working in theatre, I actually played the piano at this performance. And it was a, um, all sorts of interesting things are happening up there. Um, so this was a piece of theatre that was written. It was a play written by C.P. Taylor, um, and it was commissioned by the um, uh, live theatre in Newcastle on Tyne, which is in the northeast of England, at quite a, a working class, a quite a rough community. And it was something to express something about the war years within that community. And this production took place in 1995 in the south of England, so in a very different location. But we have this text, this play text, 
that within it, it has a lot of popular songs. And Peter Skellen, who is a, a sort of a quite a well-known popular singer um, in the UK, or was, um, uh, he had created this combination of songs that would work as scene change music, but also commentary on um, the text. So in this production that I was playing for, um, we were on a small st stage. It was um, about a four or five hundred seater theatre in the south of England. Small thrust stage. There's a piano on stage in a very realistic box set. And the father of the family that this whole show is about it comes in and, and his thing that he does at the end of the working day is he plays his piano. And that's how he releases himself from his, um, his day's work. But of course the actor couldn't play the piano and, and historically actors rarely do. And so down on the ground, just in front of the stage, in full view of the audience, I was sitting at a piano and I was playing the music. So you have a piano on stage that is, the, the keyboard is in sight of the audience, so there is no question that everybody knows what's going on. There is this framework that's set up. We have a theatrical framework that there is a certain conception of what my role is, and I'm disappeared, and the performer on the audience, we all accept this um, theatrical device. I'm the one creating the music. But then there are moments within this text where the director chose to draw attention to this arrangement. Um, and one of them was that a workman comes into the room and tings on the piano. And that is something the actor could very easily do. And yet the director chose to have me still play those tings. <laughs> and later the mother comes in and she dusts the piano. And she doesn't make a sound when she's doing it. I do the plonks on the piano. <laughs> so again, we have still this same framework, but we're using it to explore a slightly more comic moment. And then at the interval, I play the Warsaw Concerto. Suddenly, I'm the centre of attention. So attention is being drawn to my presence there quite specifically and deliberately. And it's the choice of, of, of piece of music that I played and that setting drew attention to that historical period where in the UK, during those war years, there were a lot of concert performances. People would go and listen to somebody sit and play the piano. So there was a framework being set up of one kind of historical, one kind of dramatic moment that we accept that I'm in the background of doing this. Then suddenly I'm doing a concert performance that was historically related to that moment, but I'm suddenly visible. And I, for me, that was the gap. That was the moment. That was the exploration that that, that director was playing with just to get his audience just slightly unsettled. And so I then, having thought about that, I then went to another production. Can we look at the other one? Which was one I saw, um, I didn't see it live. I saw it on a recording at um, the Royal Shakespeare Company. And this is one from 1985. It's a production of Troilus and Cressida. And um, so I've used this, which is the program cover, so that you can see that one of the key things on the program in the design, this is the set design of the, the space crumbling of um, decay, imperial dec decay, 
um, is the piano. And again, we have somebody sitting at the piano and playing. And in this case, the actor plays the piano. Um, oh, there was one other thing I wanted to point out about this. Look at the list of creators and look for the sound designer. Not there. <laughs> sound designers are something that wasn't important. The composer is mentioned, and she was working with a sound designer because I spoke to her about it, and she was working with a sound designer. Not credited. But anyway, that's, that's just a little aside. Um, and so what we have is this production where she is creating a sound design for this world, which is clearly not um, a, 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 an archaic setting or a, a, you know, a Greek um, history. It's set in another period. Can we have the yeah. next slide? And this is what um, one of the reviewers said. Um, he's from uh, The Times. And he said, an upright piano stood in the hall on which Pandarus and others played Ilona Seacatch's twisted echoes of the waltzes and polonaises of the time. So what she had done is looked at the historical period that the designer was using, and then she created music that took the music of that period, twisted it, and echoed it. But she particularly focused on this idea of a piano, because she felt that the piano was the um, instrument of this period. And so she was trying to create an unsettling effect by using the piano and upsetting it. And then, as the final coup de théâtre, uh, last slide, everybody has left the stage. Uh, the hero is hero. The leading character, Troilus, is dead. And all we have left on the stage, they have gone, our romantic couple have gone, we have the piano. And the piano has been played throughout. But what the director had asked for was that this piano would also be mechan mechanically altered so that it was a pianola. And the only thing you're left with at the end of this show is this piano playing on its own and the keys moving. So the keys are moving, so you have this ghostly echo of what's been happening through the show. And as the piano falls silent, it's like the world's over because you've had this sound world going throughout. The piano is the last thing appearing, the sound of the world, and then that sound dies. And when the sound's gone, everything's over. Um, so there were two conclusions I drew from this. One, the ephemerality of performance, and particularly the sound of performance. I haven't played you anything because this is not available. You can actually hear and see this production if you go to an archive and sit in that archive and listen to it. Not available in the way that we expect performances to be now. And I think that's one of the, perhaps one of the things we need to talk about in relation to this project, the ephemerality of sound and what it is we're actually remembering, which is something we've all been talking about as we've been going through. And then the second conclusion is that the interactions between what we see and what we hear can provide these blissful gaps that directors, musical directors and sound designers are really starting to explore playfully for all kinds of effects. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, thank you so much.
We are going to run slightly over because we have one more example and I don't want to not have that because Konstantinos uh, uh, took the time and the effort to, to record it for us. So I'll play this final video and then we'll open, open it up and see how much appetite there is for discussion and that it might be a small appetite because there will be a reception with nibbles and wine so that might over, overpower the appetite to discuss but that's fine. So uh, without further, further ado, Konstantinos and we put him last simply because he talks about an ending of a performance, so we yeah. felt that was appropriate. Uh, when I was invited to sort of select and pinpoint one moment of Sonic Bliss instigated by theatre music, one moment that immediately sprang to mind was the finale, the very end of a production that I watched 20 years ago in 2002 in Greece. The title of the production is a national hymn, Ethnikos Hymnos, and it was directed by Mikhail Marmarinos, who in the last 30 years has been sort of the leading director in Greece, the leading advocate in devising theatre and postmodern uh, theatre. His pieces are always a, a pastiche, a collage of sources, and they're normally very philosophical musings and reflections on sets of uh, questions and problems. And they're very physical uh, in nature, and of course not very realist or character-driven. So that particular piece, uh, Ethnikos Hymnus, National Hymn, it was uh, a reflection on collectivity, it was a reflection on what brings us together as communities, um, and it was, in a way, a philosophical questioning of what is a nation, what was Greece back in the days, what could be Greece in the future of 2002. But none of the scenes were explicitly dealing with scenes from history or the topic of nation, they were just encounters between a chorus of people and what coming together or finding yourself alone in this crowd would mean. The staging was that in the middle of a very non-theatrical space there were a sort of pie-shaped table. All the actors were there and they were performing on top of the tables, physical actions using microphones. And uh, the audience was around this shape, very close to, to the actors, and were involved in different ways. Direct questions were asked for uh, to us, or um, in the middle, in the table, there was um, somebody cooking um, uh, a very traditional Greek dish, a soup, and that soup was served to the audience, so we were all eating together and smelling this beautiful smell that for many people might signify Greek cuisine, so perhaps that had to do with the notion of the Greek nation. Um, and uh, throughout, there was an electronic soundscape and several pieces of music um, composed by a very influential Greek composer, Dimitris Kamarotos. Dimitris Kamarotos is sort of the leading figure in theatre music in Greece. He's very well established and very well known. And in the last 10 years, I would say, he has also created his own methodology and uh, has become a sort of director-composer figure. He, even though he's primarily a composer, now he directs full shows that have a compositional musical logic underpinning it in the lineage of what some of us might recognize as Goebbels or Apergis or director-composers. Um, 
And the moment I want to single out from this production, as I said, is the very finale, how this production ended. So, at the end of uh, the production, speakers were all around us, on top of us, there was a lot of music happening. We started hearing this really rhythmic and really loud music playing, and you can sense it because the speakers are so close and the space is so small, and there are a lot of uh, speakers, and the music goes louder and louder and louder, and it's a very sort of, not melodramatic, but quite dramatic in quality piece. It has strings, it's a walls, it becomes louder and louder, the melody is on, on a loop. Later on, I, I, I researched and the piece was uh, Russian Dance by Tom Waits on a loop. So I can play a little bit so that you can get a sense of the piece. It goes like this. piece loops again and again and again and again and what happened is that as the music played louder and louder the actors in the middle start dancing and then they start bringing us down from you know the platforms and the chairs we were sitting and we started dancing together and up until that point we didn't have that sort of physical um, interaction but this beauty of the music sort of made us drop all our resistances and we start dancing and that, that scene went on for about 10 minutes or 15 minutes and it carried on and on and on and on. We were all dancing for no reason. It became sort of an enthusiastic, uplifting party. And then the doors open and this theatre is very centrally in the city and you see the city outside and the music spills out into the city and there's no bowing, there's no end to the performance. Whoever wants to go, they go and when you go you can still hear that music following you from the theatre and of course that dance is inside you and you carry on marching in the city in its tempo, in its texture. And you know, there are all these people that leave the theater that still have this music in their mind, in their ears, and they feel it in their bodies. So, for me, that exemplifies what music can achieve in theater, or what bliss, solid bliss, can be through theater music. For a couple of reasons that that music made me feel quite effectively back in the days, but I didn't quite intellectualize them, but now listening back, I, I started thinking about that. A. It was one of the very first moments, 20 years ago, I was 18 years old, when I realized that music doesn't have to be um, a part of the plot or an atmosphere of the stage that it's so in the background that creates a general mood, but we also tend to forget about it, and it's separate from the audience. It can become the central element of a dramaturgy, even though the, uh, the, the piece, the aesthetic, is not opera or musical theater to the extent that because that was such a long scene and so uplifting and so memorable that the entirety of my memories of that production has been condensed around that scene and that music. When I think of that production, I think of that piece. The second thing uh, 
was that music in this scene created a bliss, created a sort of jouissance and sort of enjoyment and sort of visceral connection to something, to ourselves, to the others, to the peace, to the city, that created also a different temporality. A lot of the time, the temporality, the time that music offers us is functional. It gives a rhythm to a scene in the theatre, or it begins and ends with a character, the light motif, we hear this character and that music comes in, or with the production. It was the general atmosphere of the production. We heard it at the beginning, we hear it in the end, and then it fades out and the production is over. This music did everything that's opposite. It was a piece that had nothing to do with the previous production. It was a Russian music um, sort of brought in at the end of a piece about the national hymn in Greece. It didn't stop, it didn't signify the end of the production, but what it achieved, it, it for me, it made me feel that the bliss that comes from an, the enjoyment of a piece, even though you might not realize it or connect to it in a logical way, can carry on forever. It, it can signify, signify not the end, but the unendingness of a performance, the invitation to take the performance with you and carry it with you through music. And whenever I listen back, whenever I look back, I'm still thinking of all these people that were leaving the theater, but we all had inside us the feel of that music. We were a chorus, we were a nation, we were together because that music had inhabited our bodies, our affective state to such an extent. So music became an invitation through that performance to imagine, live, feel, sense, hope, and elsewhere where the performance continues forever in perpetuity. He talks about the unendingness, and we're, we're, we're approaching that point of the unendingness. But I think we should just have a few moments to allow questions from either the floor here or from Zoom. Uh, I think we, we would, if we started unpacking this, we would probably talk for another hour uh, without a problem. Unendlich. But we shouldn't. Susanna's getting twitchy eyes already. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, we should, we should allow for a few questions. Again, three, I think, very uh, interesting, very different examples. And I think we have a certain geographical spread as well, which is nice. Two things I picked out of the second round of examples are, on the one hand, which we touched on before, but the intertextual, or as I've tried to establish, intermusical nature of, of music and sound, i.e. the fact that all music refers to other music or has been used before. So here we've got, in, in Konstantinos' example, we've got a, 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 a Russian idiom being sort of uh, captured by Tom Waits, an American composer who we know from his workings, for example, with Robert Wilson, and that's been done in a different theatre. So we've got layers upon layers of sort of, 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 of that music has been sort of, um, there's a, there's a, a palimpsest, uh, if that's a thing, uh, in palimpsest is a written mm -hmm. notion, but I think there's a, maybe an overlayering of, of certain uh, memories and usages, which I find interesting, and I think that goes with some of the examples we've, we've talked about and the community effect of music, how it brings people together, how it, it can 
create a sort of shared emotion because, of course, we never know what 800 people watching a performance individually think, but music sometimes can create those moments where there's at least, you know, they all maybe dance or do something together or, or you know, clip their fingers or whatever it might be. There's a certain joint-upness that's perhaps stronger through music than through visual images or something like that. That's another aspect I found, uh, found interesting. I had thoughts about, about orientation in relation to the last um, three uh, three presentations about about where sound and music is is situated, mm. um, and I'm just thinking um, in the more recent, not that recent, but the last sort of hundred years, because um, I'm working on a project about orchestras, and I'm thinking about how orchestras, you know, we have a tradition of them being invisible in the pit, mm. right? Music coming from um, you know being off stage, mm. um, and uh, I think increasingly we are seeing. Uh, music and musicians and the musical instruments right mm. being part of the of the on stage visual dynamic um, so it does the th a thing of helping us to orient differently to to where we are right to where sound is coming from um, to the place of performance uh, and to how we understand uh, time as well I mean the the, the um, the mediatized example that you showed us, David, right, of the of the performer being, you know, being fast forwarded and, and rewound, right. It helps us to. It does this thing of both orienting and disorienting us, so that when we go into the world, we have had that experience of, um, you know, of uh, engaging with our surrounds and with how we perceive uh, anew. And I think theatre does that specifically well, or it can do at least, right. Mm -hmm. It can train us differently to go back into the world and to think about sight and sound and sensory experience um, and how wonderful and strange and um, surreal that can often be, as the surrealists were wont to do, right? Yes, for me, I think it's a, it, these last three have been much more about the, uh, the playfulness mm. um, and about the way we are encompassing and um, gathering in audiences into the performance, um, whether that's as readers of the text, um, whether it's an intertextual text, or you know, how, however we're, we're envisaging that, but also then finally in Constantinus' example, you know, taking that out of out of the theatre space into the rest. You know, there's there's a, a lovely sentence at the last of um, at the end of my yoga exercises mm. that I do from time to time, and it says, "And take this feeling out into the rest of your day." Mm. And I think I think that's what I've taken from these second three examples, is that sense of um, something about being in that theatrical world, of hearing and being part of it, of perhaps interpreting it in in unique ways, but taking that feeling mm. out with us. Mm. And I think that's one of the things perhaps you were you were looking for when you asked us to think about our memories mm. of moments of sonic bliss. Mm. Being was changed, that sense of being changed, but yeah. but also carrying them forward. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic, and I think that is a good segue to say, shall we take these thoughts mm. and these sounds with us mm. to a glass of wine and some nibbles downstairs? Perfect. I think yep. there's a certain appetite for that in the room. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. We really appreciate it. It's very much something extraordinary in these corona times to get an audience. Thank you again, Sas, for hosting us. And, uh, and thank enjoy. you, David. <laughs> thank you. And enjoy uh, the, the reception downstairs. Thank you. That's <laughs>
Many thanks for listening to this episode of Staging Sound. If you'd like to get in touch, please email stagingsound at web.de. Staging Sound at web.de. Thank you.